Raise your hands if you know somebody who's been divorced. Okay, great. Divorce is a tricky situation. I don't know if you've had friends or family that have gone through divorces, but um, in a divorce, the action is all out. Uh, How can I put this? One spouse gets the car. Another spouse gets the house. One spouse gets the kids on weekends. One spouse gets the kids during the week. One spouse gets this much money. Another spouse gets this much property. Sometimes friends are like that. This spouse gets those friends over there, and this spouse gets these friends over there. Because some divorced couples will not allow you to stay friends with both of them. It's different than a death, right? Death of a spouse, all the action is in, you know? Grandparents come in to take care of the uh, bereft family from both sides, from her side and his side. His friends come, her friends come. Friends of the family from, from all sides come to help take... So, so divorced goes out, death goes in, right? Strange. In some ways, very similar phenomenon. It's the breaking of a marriage covenant to a degree, but really, really different. Being the friend of a divorced couple is one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. Um, I like to borrow this phrase from Where Grace Abounds. Where Grace Abounds is a ministry uh, in Denver to the sexually broken. Their tagline is uh, 100% grace, 100% truth, no compromise. 100% 100% grace, 100% truth, no compromise. And when I encounter divorce, that's kind of the way I'd like to be able to handle the thing. Let me talk about the truth of what's going on. This is how you treated her. This is how you treated him. This is why you're in the pickle you're in. Uh, you need to humble yourself. You need to humble yourself. This, You know, you want to do the 100% truth thing, right? But very often, they will not let you. They will shut you out. One person turns to ice. There's an invisible curtain that comes down in between you, and you might talk, but they don't hear. And then there's the 100% grace thing where you're going, okay, well, let me accept both of you. Okay, fine, I'm not going to point any fingers. I'm just going to love you. I'm going to love you. And sometimes they won't let you do that. Because to be his friend means to be my enemy. Or to be her confidant means that I can't share with you anymore. And so if you're one of those 100% truth, 100% grace kind of people, divorce sometimes makes it very, very difficult. Sometimes the difficulties in a marriage are not so much problems to be solved as they are tensions 
to be managed. I didn't expect this. When I married her, there were no signs of this kind of behavior. And now that I'm married to her, all of a sudden she's acting this way. I didn't sign up for this. I don't want this. I want to quit. But, you know, sometimes it's not a problem to be solved because she won't change or he won't change. It's a tension to be managed, sometimes for years, sometimes for life. Today in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to come upon a passage where Jesus is asked questions about divorce. I know that uh, most of you here in this room are not married. You're looking forward to it. This might sober you up a bit. I know some of you here in this room have been married and you're going, it's so hard. Hopefully this will encourage you. And some of you have been married and are divorced. My hope is, is that you will find the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, and also His truth. And you'll have to hold those in tension because sometimes it's not a problem to be solved, but it's a tension to be managed. So let's go to the book of Mark, chapter 10. Now, I have gone and taken the liberty of renaming the chapter headings because I figure those aren't divinely inspired, and they're certainly not very funny. But mine can be both informative and clever. So my first chapter title, because remember, those are not inspired in your NIV translation, no matter who's on the committee. <laughs> the, <laughs> but my first uh, chapter title is called Diagnosis Cardiosclerosis. Diagnosis heart that's hard. That's what it means. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and came across the Jordan. That's the Jordan River. Again, crowds of people came to him as was his custom. He taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Insert pregnant pause. What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Notice that Jesus asks what Moses commanded. They didn't really answer the question. They rather replied with what Moses permitted. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Let me read you from Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is from the law of Moses. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, 
gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land. The Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This part of the law of Moses on divorce there. And um, obviously, not so much in the woman's favor at that particular point in history. But Jesus replies, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. All right. Now, a little historical cultural background. Back in the Judean world of that time, um, women didn't divorce men. Hardly ever. It was men who divorced women. They were given permission in the law to do that, as we just read. There were all sorts of schools of thought about what it took for a man to find something displeasing or indecent about his wife. But bottom line, you could divorce her by handing her a certificate of divorce. Now, there is usually exchange of some kind of money. There was actually a form of a prenuptial agreement so the woman didn't go away empty-handed. And there was some protection for her, obviously, given in that Deuteronomical law, about the first guy coming back and all that kind of stuff. But it was a fairly simple procedure, even for a Jew. Now, in the Greco-Roman world around Israel, like Israel's this tiny little piece of property, right, on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, then you had, oh, the big, wide Roman Empire, right, the uh, Hellenistic Roman Empire, and it was pretty easy. It was even easier to divorce in that part of the world because a woman could just leave. You could just leave and be divorced, or a guy could just kick you out and be divorced. Now, the guy usually got the kids, but you know, that was then different than it is now. It's almost, well, a large percentage of Roman families were blended families as a result of people marrying and remarrying. So this is the culture into which Jesus is being asked this question. Just want you to know, it's a lot like our culture today. Divorce was easy. Now, remember that the context of this story really isn't about divorce, okay? The context is the Pharisees are coming to trap Jesus with a question. They're going to ask him something to try and trip him up. They want him to be discredited among his followers. They want him to say something that will allow them to trap them in a manner of their own law and that they can thus, you know, apprehend him and do with him what they want. They're looking for an opportunity to get this guy. So they don't really, 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 really want to know the answer to the question they're asking. They're just trying to trip Jesus up, okay? Now Jesus responds knowing that this is what they're trying to do. And so he plays with them a little bit. What did Moses command you? Well, Jesus knew Moses didn't command anything about divorce. He permitted it. They knew that Moses didn't command anything about divorce, so they end up looking like idiots even with the asking of the question. 
Why do I go into this? Because this is not Jesus' complete teaching on divorce. you got to read other stuff, like Matthew 5 or Matthew 19 and other places, even in the New Testament where divorce is talked about, to get the whole counsel of the biblical record on matters of divorce. So get that in your heads right off the bat. All right. But let's get back to the matter at hand. Jesus says that hard-heartedness is a reason for divorce from God's perspective. He goes back to, well, it's not a reason for divorce from human perspective. It's because your hearts were hard that Moses gave you this loophole. It's not because... It's what God had in mind. Let's go on. Verse 6, God's heart for marriage. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate, or let man not separate. So Jesus goes back to Genesis, to the first book of the Bible, and says, look, this is the way it was meant to be. There wasn't supposed to be a divorce. Why? There's all sorts of reasons. If you look throughout the rest of the Bible, marriage is supposed to be a picture of the way God loves his people. And God does not abandon his people. Marriage even, I think, reflects the love of the Trinity. Father for Son, Holy Spirit for Father, Son for both of them, and it goes around and around and around and around. All those possible combinations. So the picture of marriage is supposed to be a reflection, an image of the way God loves his people. And God does not abandon his people, does not give them a certificate of divorce, does not forsake us. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus goes back to the first book of the Bible, not to Moses. Notice the heart theme here. We've got the hard-heartedness that Jesus talks about in the first part. We've got the part that talks about God's heart for marriage. And now we're going to go into the consequences of hard-heartedness. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. You bet they did. (laughs) They probably asked him because they're going, This is difficult. Matter of fact, one of the other Gospels, they're going, if this is the way it is, then why should you ever get married? Because as men, we like the option of sending our wives away. It's convenient. Keeps them in line. Makes our lives a whole lot sweeter. It's like, holy cow. This is difficult. But not in this Gospel. They don't 
That's not recorded, but that's what they're asking. It's in Matthew. Jesus answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And they're going, oh God, it's got worse. It just got worse. I didn't think it could get any worse. Now it just got worse. Now, what you're telling me is, Jesus, that not only is it not God's plan for me to divorce my wife if I find her displeasing or indecent in some way, now you're saying... I make her commit adultery, and then I commit adultery, and it's like, another guy commits, and it's like, oh my God. Like, what's God going to do to us? There's this t-shirt I love. It's uh, got these three characters on it, all like in their bowling outfits, and they're cowering like this, looking up. And the, the caption reads, Wallace Pooley and his bowling mates momentarily forget the mercy of God. Nobody thinks it's funny except for me. <laughs> but um, really, this is the way I look at life. It's like I'm a schmuck. I mean, I mean, it's not just the sins I commit that I know about. What about the sins I commit that I don't know that I'm committing? Oh my God. What about the things I ought to do that I don't do that I know about? And what about the things that I ought to do that I don't do that I don't know about? I mean, I'm shielding myself like Wallace Pooley. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, I'd be wiped out. And these guys are going, oh. I picture the disciples like that right there going, just shielding themselves from something falling from out of the sky. This adultery thing is a big deal. This morning in morning church, holy cow. This is tough. What's Jesus saying? Here, I'm going to go to, do you think this is bad? Listen to this. This is Jesus in Matthew 5. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in your hand into hell. Etc., etc., etc. Going. You know, he goes on and on. It's like Jesus is not giving us any room here. From God's point of view, does that mean that um, any guy here who's ever looked at. Uh, an image of a woman, whether clothed or unclothed, and wonder what it would be like to take her to bed, is guilty of adultery? Yes, that's what it means. Or does this mean that, that any woman who has fantasized about what it might be like to be married to somebody else or married to a guy who's already married to someone else or some guy that she'll never meet, 
Um, and, you know, it, or in, who she saw in a mag- I mean, it's like, does that mean she's guilty of adultery? Yes, that's what it means. <laughs> Let me paint this picture even more starkly. Nobody does it right. Everybody screws it up. We are effed. (laughs) From a divine perspective, of course. Now, don't get me wrong. If my wife was thinking about another man, as opposed to thinking and doing something with another man, I would prefer the former to the latter. I don't think that even though all sins may be equal in the sight of God, that the consequences for every sin is equal in the sight of God or in the sight of men and women. I think it's a huge step to take to lust in one's heart versus going off and actually accomplishing, you know, some kind of infidelity. I think the leap is huge, and I think the consequences are more severe that way. But if you want to talk about matters of the heart, well, Jesus says, you're all effed. Excuse me, people from Kiowa, but this is um, one of the benefits of um, planting a church. Um, I, uh, I can say things like that because um, anybody who hates that about me leaves. <laughs> and um, it makes the point very clear to my audience. Jesus' response to soft hearts. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Oh, finally, the Jesus that I've come to love and, and, and the one that, that I like. Isn't that great that like this is at the end of this terrible passage? Really, seriously, it's like, finally, this is the Jesus. This is, you know, I, you know, first it's like, so long, sweet Jesus, and now, oh, it's sweet Jesus again. Praise God. Here we go. I'm thankful that it's here in the Scripture the way it is, because... Um, Jesus will not push away anybody who's got a soft heart. What what is it about kids? You know, they have all the expectations that God will do what He says He's going to do. They they know that that God is patient, that God is kind, 
that God is not quick to take offense, you know, that he hopes all things, believes all things. All that 1 Corinthians 13 stuff, they, they realize that about Jesus. They're going, yeah, I can come to him. You know, it, it, if only we could remain that way, childlike in our hearts, soft, expecting God to, to come and, and, and to receive us no matter how we've messed up, no matter how hard our hearts have been in the past. There's, there's that. And so as I look at this tough teaching on the permanence of marriage and what it means to divorce and to have a hard heart or a soft heart, what do we take away from this that's come of the earth church? I think we've got to take seriously what it means to marry in light of of God's holy love for us. It means we got to be very, very careful about who you pick to marry. It means, like, listen to what Jesus says. Not just he himself, but even through his homeboys, the disciples, you know, who finally really ended up getting it. The Apostle Paul. What I see is the kind of thing that is in a book called um, Checker Morality. And people believe these falsehoods about marriage. Let me give you a couple. Marriage will solve my problems. If I get married, I will never be lonely again. By marriage, I can escape my parents and my family of origin. Marriage is like an eternal date. Oh, I will change him or her after we're married. In marriage, our differences won't cause us any trouble. It adds spice to the relationship. Or, on the other side... Marriage is a trap or a prison. Marriage takes all the fun out of life. Marriage is simply a piece of paper. (sighs) Look. Christian marriage is meant to be a reflection of of the way that God loves a stubborn, arrogant, willfully disobedient, sinful group of people forever and ever. That's what it's meant to be. And I guarantee, I guarantee that when and if and when you get married, you will have a chance to walk out the vows you say in front of the pastor and the congregation. I promise to love you for better or for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. I've said this before. I think God is standing up in heaven listening to you Going, really? 
that's great. Because I will give you a chance to do that. Because that's what I do with you. So I'll tell you what. Maybe like, as soon as you get back from the honeymoon, things are going to go crazy. And we'll see if you can keep your vows two weeks out. Tony Campolo, in his book, 20 Hot Potatoes Christians Are Afraid to Touch, says this, I personally believe that most married couples inevitably come to a time where they wonder why they ever got married in the first place and think that it will be a relief to be free again. There comes that morning when the guy wakes up and looks across the bed to see his wife still asleep, her hair hanging down over her face, her mouth half open, and asks, How did I get into this? Or perhaps... She wakes up first to see her unshaven husband who, as in my case, has no hair hanging down over his face. And she asks, is this what I'm stuck with for the rest of my life? Here's a news flash. God picks two imperfect people to bring them together to show what His love is like for us to the entire world. That's what He does. And He's got a plan. The hard parts in your heart, those calluses that are there where the heart's not soft, are going to rub up against the hard parts in the other one's heart. And they're going to start friction like sandpaper and it's going to wear those calluses right down so so God has soft hearts in both sides. That's what he's doing. I mean, nobody thought he was cooler, more intelligent, or more God's gift to woman when he got married than me. I was convinced Mary was getting the prize of her dating life. And if you doubt that, just ask her about the guy she dated before me. No contest. All right, now, can you see a problem brewing already? So we get married. I go into ministry right out of the honeymoon. Um... I love the ministry. I was gone during the day to the office, hobnobbing with my other staff people or the pastor or whatever. Then at night, of course, that's when the kids were off school. That's when I would go hang out with the kids. And the weekends, well, the weekends were like major opportunity for ministry whether it was a weekend camp or whether it was going to a football game or whether it was hanging out with a kid all day. After a while, my wife said she started feeling like my maid and my mistress because I wanted food when I came home and I wanted sex. I thought this was a a fine arrangement. (laughs) Worked for me. All right, so we're in the ministry van. We're going to this meeting where I'm supposed to pick up a bunch of kids and cart them across Cleveland someplace. Mary and I are having an argument. I know it's hard to believe. Mary 
has had about enough because when I start getting excited in my Greek way, my volume raises. I become very dogmatic, very patriarchal, and we come to a stop sign in the middle of Pepper Pike, and she goes, see ya. And she opens the door and takes off. I am dumbfounded. I don't know what to do. I parked the van. It was in a roundabout. I remember it was a roundabout. And I pull over to the side of the roundabout. And, I, and, and then I, I'm calling her name. Mary! Mary, where are you? She's hiding. <laughs> I keep looking at my watch. The kids are waiting. Their parents just dropped them off. Mary! Mary, no response. She's hiding behind some bushes. She's figuring, I'm just going to find my way home somehow. I'm not going with this guy. But she never told me that. I just knew that she was missing in the middle of East Cleveland someplace. And um, after a while, I, I didn't know what to do. I go, okay. So I say, I'll be back. <laughs> And so I go to the church and I call the whole thing off. I'm devastated. I'm devastated. I'm going, my wife said, I don't know what's going to happen to her. I don't know what's going on. She just snapped. I, you know, I, I you know, uh, and, and so I have all the kids call their parents. They're thinking, Sarah, you are a lame one. What a jerk. I am never coming back to your youth group stuff again. This youth ministry is a bust. I mean, seriously, this this evening kind of put, <laughs> you know, it put the, the, the death stroke to the ministry. And uh, I came back, called out her name. She's not there. I'm driving very slowly back home, looking either side, trying to find her, see if she's along the side of the road. Finally get back to where we were living. There she was. She had found some, you know, neighbors said, hey, you know, I'm stuck out here. Can I have a ride? And, you know, come on. I mean, she's like 24 years old and gorgeous and you know, who's not going to give her a ride? And so uh, she was thinking I would be so happy that she was safe. <laughs> I had just destroyed my ministry. I was so pissed off that I started screaming. I mean, I wasn't raising my voice anymore. I was screaming. We were living with this dude, this old dude, retired guy in this mansion, right? I mean, he hears me up in the servant's wing on like the second, third floor, wherever it was, and he comes running because I am screaming now at Mary through a locked door because, you know, she ran away and locked the door. And, um, you know... It was a train wreck. Just a train wreck. But what was going on is this. The hard parts of my heart were rubbing against the hard parts in her heart. And God was doing a work of redemption. He was making us soft-hearted. 
if I could just get past it. Look, there's other stories. If you really want to hear them, go into the archives. I think it's Ephesians 5. You'll hear about the stealing of the car when Mary stole the car and all that kind of stuff. Um, Because it took me a long time to learn this. That the calluses in our spouses are the sandpaper that rub off our own calluses in terms of our hearts. That God has specially picked this imperfect person to work on your imperfect heart so that together he can have a couple who through thick and thin, through for better, for worse, for richer, poor, in good times and bad, reflect the kind of love that he has for us. That's what's going on. So, let me just say, before you get married, think about these kinds of things. Who do you want to fight with? Whom do you want to have, you know, these kinds of friction-like encounters? Whom do you want God to work through to make your heart soft? Because that's what's going to happen. It's not going to be just all, you know, roses and chocolates and bubble baths. It's not going to be that. There is so much to talk about in this topic, but I I can't go there. We'll have to save it for later. So this is kind of what I would like to see for Scum of the Earth Church. I don't believe in premarital counseling anymore. I think premarital counseling is way too late. (laughs) The train has left the station. It's picking up speed. It's headed toward that depot called the wedding day and once you get on that train and you start you know signing up for dishes and kitchen appliances and you send out the invitations and you pick out the dress and you pick out the tuxes and you get the place you know you're just picking up steam and by the time something happens where you want to say wait a minute Maybe we're not right for each other the train is going 80 miles an hour and to jump out means certain death And so you don't do it. So forget premarital counseling. It's pre-engagement counseling from now on. All right? That's what I'm saying. If you're dating somebody and it's getting serious, you think you may want to spend the rest of your lives together, then what I would like you to do is find a counselor and go to that counselor saying, hey, we're thinking about getting engaged. We'd like to uh, find out, you know, where the hidden landmines are on this road to marriage. Because every road to marriage has these hidden landmines full of shrapnel. And when you step on it, it'll blow your leg off. (laughs) But you don't know what's there. So you want to find out where that is. And you want to find out if, you know, your imperfections and her imperfections can actually work. That's what you're trying to... I mean, forget the fact that one of you is perfect. You're both messed up. All right? You're both... You know, you've probably both committed adultery millions of times in your head. Read books. 
There's a ton of great books out there, especially Christian books about what it means to have a good marriage. Read them before you're engaged. Interview couples who have been married for a long time and whom you respect. Ask them about how they did it, like what the good parts are, what the bad parts are. Have them tell stories that make them look like idiots, like I just got done doing. Have them tell those stories. It'll put the fear of God in you. If not the fear of God, maybe the fear of your future spouse. Story about one guy goes on this uh, donkey uh, backpacking trip down to the bottom of the, of the Grand Canyon with his uh, girlfriend. And um, so they're going down on these donkeys, and then all of a sudden her donkey stumbles. She has to get up off the ground, and she looks at the donkey, she says, that's once. They keep going down, pretty soon the donkey stumbles, stumbles again. She's on the ground, she gets up, she goes, that's twice to the donkey. They keep going down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Next thing you know, the donkey stumbles a third time. She opens her backpack, pulls out a pistol, and boom, right through the brains of the donkey. Kills him. Her boyfriend's going, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You can't do that. Do you have a license? What, what is going on? And she says, that's once. Find these things out before you get engaged. <laughs> Go to the Crofts study, even as a dating couple. Jim and Amy Croft have a Bible study that's kind of geared toward uh, young couples. They tend to share from their life, and they uh, study things in that Bible study uh, that would be beneficial to couples very often. If you're divorced, and I know here in this crowd there's not a lot of you, but it is some of you. If that's you, I would say the same thing I say to people contemplating marriage. I would say get some counseling. If you've gone through a divorce and you haven't gone through some counseling, whether it's professional, licensed counseling, or whether it's pastoral counseling, then you ought to do at least one, if not both of those things, because you want to make sure that you have the tools to make it work the next time it happens. Or even if it doesn't happen the next time, you want to deal with the hurts from the past so that it doesn't hamper you in your life as a member of the body of Christ. There's divorce recovery groups. So many people have been divorced. And one of the things I'm most proud of of the American church is that it's one of the first organizations to come forward with divorce recovery workshops and, and, uh, and seminars when nobody else was doing it. The church was opening its arms to divorce people saying, look, we know that God doesn't like divorce. He hates what it does to couples. He hates what it does to kids and to grandparents. He hates that kind of stuff. But you know what? God loves divorced people, especially those who have a soft heart toward him and want to come and sit in his lap and be blessed by Jesus. Come to our church. Come to our group and heal. You're not just going through a divorce you're going to grow through a divorce. That's actually the title of a book by Jim Smoke, Growing Through Divorce. 
I highly recommend it. Above all, do not turn your back on Jesus. Just don't turn your back on Jesus. Be like the little children. Be like the little children who come to Him. It doesn't matter. You know, even if Jesus' followers are trying to keep you away, saying, no, don't bother the Master. You're not important enough. You're not old enough. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Even if His own people, as in this story, are trying to keep you away, maintain your soft heart, come to Him, and He will bless you because He loves you. Because Jesus is a Savior. He knows that we're but dust. He understands. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I hope that we can hold the truth and the grace of this passage in tension. It's not a problem to be solved, Lord, as much as it's attention to be managed. Help us to believe that you love us 100% and that you still have your standards. Thank you for welcoming, welcoming us into your arms. No matter how badly we've screwed up, it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.